You're listening to TIP. The stock market, if you just bought and owned the market and reinvested any dividends over time, you would have gotten about a 10% return. Now, if you ask people, you know, if you bought an individual stock, what percent of them outperform? Most people would think, well, it's probably 50-50, and it's nowhere near that. Far fewer stocks beat the market than people think. In fact, here's a number that's probably going to shock you. Only 4% of all the stocks, 1 in 25, account for 100% of all the excess return of stocks. Now, what are the odds you're going to find those stocks and hold them for the entire time to make sure you capture those gains. On today's episode, I am joined by Larry Swedro, who is the head of financial and economic research for Buckingham Wealth Partners. Larry holds an MBA from NYU and a bachelor's degree in finance from Baruch College. He has also authored over 18 books and writes for Advisor Perspectives, Alpha Architect, and Seeking Alpha. During this episode, Larry and I talk all about his book, The Only Guide to a Winning Investment Strategy You'll Ever Need. He covers what a winning investment strategy looks like, and he shares some really interesting research behind why active strategies like stock picking, market timing, and active management are losing strategies. We also cover factor investing and how this strategy can be used to improve our expected returns over the long run and the five rules factors must meet to invest in them and even how Warren Buffett's outperformance can be explained by exposure to these factors. I really enjoyed this conversation with Larry. He is such an incredible teacher and leader in the space of evidence-based investing. He puts out so much great content on just about every investment topic you can think of. And so I highly recommend checking out his articles by connecting with him on LinkedIn, as well as his books that I've linked in the show notes. They have truly helped me become a better investor and I cannot recommend them enough. So with that all said, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I am joined by Larry Swedro. Larry, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm so excited for today's conversation. I've been reading your work for years, and it's truly been instrumental in helping me become a better investor. It's really interesting because you were among one of the first authors to write on passive investing. I'm just curious to know what led you to want to start educating investors in the passive investing space. I think the right way to think about this is, unfortunately, despite the fact that money is probably one of the most important things in people's lives, it's not, of course, money itself, but what money can do for you provide a secure retirement, allow you to achieve the things you'd like to do. I just came back from a trip to Israel and Jordan, got to see amazing places like Petra, provide a good education for your children. And yet, despite that, I mean, other than your family, your health, 
For some people, perhaps their religion, money is the next most important thing. And despite that, unless you get an MBA in finance, it's a virtual certainty you haven't taken even a single course in capital markets theory and investing. So it's a great failure of our education system to educate investors on what the most prudent way to invest, given what the academic literature says. So where do investors get their information from? The enemy, which is mostly Wall Street, who wants to extract fees uh, from investors, and they try to tell people that the right way to invest is pick stocks and time the market. And you have people like uh, the folks at CNBC or Bloomberg News that they need you to tune in. And Money Magazine and Barron's, they need you to tune in and read because that's how they make money when you are far better off ignoring all that noise. Great example, Warren Buffett, who most people would say is maybe the greatest investor of all time. He has said he hasn't read an economic or market forecast in 25 years. So why should you be paying attention to those things? I thought I would try to contribute to people like John Bogle and William Bernstein and a few others who've made it their life's mission to educate investors on what the research shows is the way to give you the best chance of achieving your life and financial goals. And that's why I love your book so much. You provide so much evidence behind each point. And so it just makes it so clear as to why this strategy is optimal for most people and why the rest is noise like you just described. So I want to talk about your first book on passive investing. It's called The Only Guide to a Winning Investment Strategy You'll Ever Need. And you refer to passive investing and diversification as the winning strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about why you call this the winning strategy? Think about that there are really two types of games that you can play. One is a game like you and I are playing chess. That's a zero-sum game. There's one winner and one loser, and there are no expenses, right? If you and I try to pick a sports team and bet on them, you and I have no expenses. That's a zero-sum game. When it comes to investing, however, it's not a zero-sum game because there are some expenses. And if I buy a stock, I'm betting it's going to outperform the market, right? Because I could just very cheaply buy an ETF today that owns the entire market for three basis points. If I'm trading an individual stock and doing it frequently, I've got bid offer spreads, maybe commissions, and I'm going to have higher costs and tax inefficiency as well. If you and I are both trying to pick stocks and time the market, well, collectively, we're going to lose because we have expenses that are more. So if I outperform because I've picked stocks that have outperformed the market and overweighted them, somebody has to be on the other side and they have underweighted those stocks. So they're the loser. That's the question is, which is the winner's game in this zero-sum game before expenses, but negative-sum game after expenses? So even if you're good at picking stocks and timing the market, you still have to be good enough to overcome your expenses. When I wrote that book in 1998, the evidence was that only about 20% of active managers, meaning professional mutual fund institutional investors, were outperforming appropriate risk-adjusted benchmarks. That was before taxes. 
but after expenses. So I don't like those odds of 80% against you. Even worse, if you're a taxable investor, taxes are the largest expense for most taxable investors if you're active, bigger than the expense ratio of the fund, bigger than the trading costs as well. If once you take taxes into account, the numbers were like 10%. 90% chance you're a loser. It's kind of like the odds in a Las Vegas casino. If you play long enough, some people win. Today now, and I wrote a book called The Incredible Shrinking Alpha with my friend Andy Burkett, showed why it's actually getting harder and harder to outperform the market. That, those numbers are down to 2% and 1% after taxes or so. And that was as far back as 10 years ago, so it's probably even less today. Here's the way to think about it. The people who are engaged in active investing certainly have the chance to win that game. Can't rule it out, but the odds of doing so are so poor that obviously the prudent strategy is to choose not to play. So it's not that the people are losers. It's a loser's game. And just like the surest way to win in Las Vegas, or the racetrack is don't play. Don't be an active investor and you will you have the best chance of achieving your financial goals if you diversify. And so let's touch on that briefly. The stock market, if you just bought and owned the market and reinvested any dividends over time, you would have gotten about a 10% return. Now, if you ask people, you know, if you bought an individual stock, what percent of them outperform? Most people would think, well, it's probably 50-50, and it's nowhere near that. Far fewer stocks beat the market than people think. In fact, here's a number that's probably going to shock you, Rebecca, even though you've read my books, which is this. If you look at the excess return of stocks over treasury bills, that's called the risk premium for equities, right? So you should earn an excess return for taking that risk. Only 4% of all the stocks, 1 in 25, account for 100% of all the excess return of stocks. Now, what are the odds you're going to find those stocks and hold them for the entire time to make sure you capture those gains? Here, most stocks underperform the market. And therefore, as you add more stocks to your portfolio, you're increasing the chances of getting the median return and the mean return for stocks. If you own a few stocks, which is unfortunately what most people tend to do or individual investors, you have, do have a chance to hit that home run and find the next Google or Microsoft, but the odds are greatly against you. And unfortunately, all the research on individual investors show that the vast majority of them underperform. In fact, the stocks that they buy on average go on to underperform after they buy them, and the stocks they sell go on to outperform after they sell them. Of course, since there's zero-sum game, someone's on the other side. Turns out it's the smarter institutional investors who are exploiting dumb retail money, but they have expenses and even that's not sufficient to overcome that. And therefore, even the institutional investors lose, even though they're able to outperform the dumb, naive retail investors.
You said so much there that I want to unpack. And that number is so mind blowing still how it's just such a small amount that actually is able to beat the market. I have a couple follow-up questions. Is that also true in a global context or is that, was that just done in the US? No, that's true around the globe. And it's, thing is, you have to remember with stocks, the distribution of returns is not like a bell curve. And the reason is the most you could lose is 100%. But what's the most you can gain? Could be 10,000%, right? So you have a few stocks that are called lottery stocks. You hit the lottery if you bought and owned Microsoft or Apple and held it through a very long period of time. Those stocks make up for the many stocks that disappear. In fact, a very small percentage of stocks even last 30, 40, 50 years. Every year, there's a significant number of stocks disappear. Unfortunately, most investors, because I would say simply because they're human beings, they tend to be overconfident. Doesn't matter what the question is. You ask them, are you a better than average driver or a better than average lover? It doesn't matter. Either way, 90% of people pretty much say they're better than average, which of course cannot be. So when it comes to picking stocks, of course, they think they're better than average. Makes them overconfident. If you're overconfident, why do you need to diversify? Because you can pick the stocks that will outperform. The evidence says not only it's not true, but here's a couple of interesting little stories. One, a study, you know, many people believe that more heads are better than one. So if you look at investment clubs, and they actually do worse than individual investors. And the best story of all was about the Mensa Investment Club, which I wrote about. Now, you have to be a genius, literally, to be a member of Mensa. IQ is in the top, I think, one or 2%. And the Mensa Investment Club dramatically underperformed the market, doing worse than the average investment club. And again, it could be due to overconfidence. It is pretty remarkable reading all of those examples that you give in the book, because on one hand, I think people like active strategies and we'll get into these. I wanted to talk with you about that in a little bit. We like these strategies because we feel like we have more control and things like that. But I do want to touch on one thing because a lot of your book focused on why active managers can't beat the market. And we talked about costs, fees after tax. But what about for the retail investor where we don't have those same fees and costs and those hurdles? Is it still the same in the evidence that we also can't beat the market, even though we're not subject to all those costs? Or what what does it say about that? Well, first, I'll add uh, active investing is exciting. And that's the pill, if you will, that causes people, besides being overconfident, they want to play. It is exciting. We all know that betting, for example, on sports is a loser's game. The house just keeps taking some of those chips off the table, yet billions of dollars are bet every day. Same thing, people go to Las Vegas casinos, knowing they're taking the vigorish out of every bet. And people go because it's exciting. Active investing is exciting. People watch Jim Cramer on CNBC and they think it's exciting trying to beat the market. So, and it does offer the hope of great returns. Unfortunately, you could take your IRA and buy a lottery ticket and you'd have about as much chance of winning as you do at that game if you're active. So that's it. So individual investors, here's the thing that's easy to understand, but virtually nobody thinks about it. 
The mistake that people make is that they confuse information with what's called value-added information or wisdom. Let's uh, use you as an example, Rebecca. Have you ever bought any individual stocks? I have, yes. Give me the name of any one of them. So one of them was RBC, Banks in Canada. All right. So you bought RBC, and I'm sure because you're an intelligent woman, you had probably 10 or 15 good reasons. You did your research. You didn't just get a tip on Reddit and said, here are the reasons why. You looked at management and said they've got a great management team, strong balance sheet, good culture, you know, earnings ad looks great, and you list all these things. Now, what you fail to do, I'm willing to bet, is to ask the, this very simple question. And let's agree, all the things you cited are true. Let's say you're investing in a drug company. You've done the research that they've got this great product that's going to cure cancer, right? Then you have to ask this question. Am I the only one who knows these things? What do you think? Were you the only one who knew all those good things about RBC? Absolutely not. What do you think the smart people, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and other institutional investors, hedge funds, etc., did they know what you knew? Now, since we know that beating the market is a zero-sum game, if you're buying it, somebody has to sell you that stock, right? It doesn't get created out of thin air. So if you're buying the stock at 40 because you think it's worth 50, they're selling it at 40. Only one of you could be right. You think it's undervalued. They think it's overvalued. So they're selling it, right? What are the odds that you're right versus them? with the greater information. You know, just acknowledging they know more than you, and that's what the research shows. Every time individuals buy a stock, on average, it goes on to underperform after they buy it, and on average, when they sell, they underperform. Because people never stop to ask the question, what do I know that the rest of the world doesn't know? If you bought TDC because you thought, let's say it was trading at 40, and you thought it's worth 50, if Morgan Stanley thought it was worth 50, where would it be? They wouldn't be sitting on their hands watching the ticker trade at 40. They would be buying it. It would already be at 50. So the collective wisdom of the market thinks the stock is really only worth 40. You're just overconfident of your ability to analyze and make a judgment, and you think it's undervalued. It's possible that it'll turn out to be right, but the evidence shows otherwise. Now, you're, the problem is this. The market is so efficient and it's setting its prices that it's difficult for the active investors to exploit you because they're betting against the collective wisdom of the market. Remember this, today, about 90% of all trading is done by institutions. When you buy a stock, say TDC, the odds are nine to one that it's, another, it's an institution on the other side you're not trading likely against another naive retail investor who you might be smarter than. You're trading against Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch's of the world, and hedge fund managers, etc. But here's the problem for the active institutional investors. When Goldman Sachs is buying the stock, who's likely on the other side? Well, it's 90%. It's likely to be someone like Morgan Stanley or Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. 
And who's to say who's smarter there? Who's the dummy in that game that's being exploited? And the problem is when you own one stock, you have the opportunity to hit that home run, but you also have much greater odds it will underperform the market because most stocks underperform. And therefore, you're under-diversified and therefore you're likely to lose. You reduce your odds of underperforming the more the number of stocks you buy. And if you follow the research, there are certain types of stocks, and that gets us into a whole other te uh, territory here, that have outperformed the market over the long term. And they're the kind of stocks that Warren Buffett had been telling people for 50 years to buy. But you don't have to pick individual stocks to do that. Today, there are mutual funds that buy all of the types of stocks that have certain traits and characteristics that Buffett told you about. And all the mutual funds or ETFs that we recommend at our firm, Buckingham, actually follow those strategies. They don't just buy, say, five stocks that Warren Buffett might buy. My portfolio probably has 20,000 stocks uh, in them. But they all have those same characteristics of being cheap and profitable. And we also tend to avoid what's called negative momentum stocks, stocks that are recently underperforming. I do have a question on that because, okay, so if it is the case where we buy a stock and it's fairly valued, then let's just say right. it is fairly valued. We would still expect to get the discount rate, the cost of capital. I guess if we buy the stock, even knowing that, okay, it might be the right price, it might not, but I want the discount rate. I want that cost of capital. How does that factor into it? Because it's not like you don't get a return then. You expect to get the cost of capital. So right. how do you think about that right. then? The right way to think about this is if you, it'd be easier if I, you know, we had a graph and a board here, but if you think about a bell curve, the cost of capital, which is your expected return, would be a line that you would draw vertically down the middle of that bell curve. So when you, and let's say, just using the historical data, that's 10%. So the average stock has gotten 10%. T-bills were about three. You earned the compound return of about 7% as a risk premium. Okay? The problem is, in theory, most people think half the stocks are to the right of that 10 and half the stocks are to the left of the 10. But as I told you earlier, it's not true. Maybe it's 60% of the stocks are to the left and only 40 are to the right. And the distribution is really skewed because there's a very thin far tail to the right, the Microsofts and the Googles. And there's a lot of stocks to the left that eventually go bankrupt and disappear. So it's like a lottery ticket. When you buy it, the average expected return is 50%, but 99% of people get minus 100%. And a very few get some high returns, right? So when you're buying one stock, the odds are you're going to get below the mean because the average stock, more, less than 50%, get the market return. And as you add more stocks, you move towards the right until you eventually own the market. And now you're right at that mean return. So the problem there is, yes. You have an expected return there, but you have to think about it as a potential dispersion of returns. Think about spinning a wheel. Let's say there were 100 stocks in the market and you had a wheel with 100 different stocks on it. 
they all don't get 10%, right? But if you spun the wheel 100 times randomly, you would expect to get 10%. But if you spun it once, you might lose 100% or make 1,000%. And that's what you're doing. You're spinning that wheel not enough times. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So you wrote a great chapter on your book, just talking about does the market value stocks correctly? Because I think often market efficiency is confused with stock valuation. Can you explain to our listeners these two things and kind of reconcile how investors are able to beat the market then with active approaches? Market efficiency doesn't mean that the market price is the right price. We don't know that until after the fact. Clearly, for example, Enron, before it went bankrupt, was trading at much higher prices. Turned out that wasn't the right price. And we do have occasional bubbles like we had in the dot-com era. And recently, not long ago, we've seen the same thing with a lot of these meme stocks there. 
What market efficiency means is the market's price is the best estimate we have of the right price. And it's very difficult to outperform the market by trying to pick stocks and time the market and overcome your expenses. In other words, the market, there are actually well-documented inefficiencies. These are called anomalies in finance. So I'll give a few of them to you so it'll help your readers. Actually, there's a whole group of stocks that I've called lottery stocks because their distribution looks like the lottery ticket. Gives you the chance to hit the home run, but uh, the other side of the coin is the average expected return is very poor. IPOs have had very poor returns. I just wrote a piece on that that was published by Advisor Prospectus. Stocks in bankruptcy. You know, they trade. They're in indexes even, and index funds buy them. And yet 99% of them never pay out one penny to the shareholders. Most of them lose money. People like them because, hey, it's all, Hertz is only trading at 70 cents. If they get out of bankruptcy and turn around, it'll be $10. And I'll make a, you know, many times my money. Well, but the odds of you're getting there are close to zero. It's much more likely we'll go to zero. And here's maybe the most interesting thing, or two more interesting. One of his penny stocks, the same kind of thing. You know, they trade at very low prices and their returns are god awful. And small cap growth stocks with high investment and low profitability. So think about that. These are the dot com, you know, stocks. These are the more recent. We just went through the same thing recently with a whole group of story companies, right? They have returned less than treasury bills over the last hundred years. And yet people continue to buy them in the hope, or it's the hope, it's the triumph of hope over wisdom and experience. Actually, the funds that we use, while they believe markets are highly efficient, they don't want to fight the evidence and they screen out these lottery stocks and won't buy them. And the reason the market is inefficient is it's very costly and expensive and risky to bet against them. In order, let's say, let's use GameStop as an example, which went through the roof with the Reddit crowd, you know, recognizing they could create a short squeeze. Let's say a stock is trading at 10 and you think it's worth one, right? You're a hedge fund. So in order for you to short it, you have to go in and borrow the stock and you have to pay a fee. If I'm going to lend you that stock, I'm going to charge you a fee. That fee can be very high. So you're going to pay a big expense. Number two, you're going to take, borrow the stock and then sell it at 10 and you hope to buy it back later at one. So now you have trading costs. Okay. You've got to sell it. The problem is the gain potential is $10. That's all you could gain. What's the maximum loss? It's infinite as the Reddit crowd showed. And if you get caught in a short squeeze, it could go up. Those high costs and fear of you know, unlimited losses means that the big, smart institutional investors take great risks. And those are called limits to arbitrage that prevent them from taking those bets. Now, the evidence that shows that short sellers are really smart investors on average. They, the stocks that they short go on to significantly underperform, but it's very risky. 
as, for example, one hedge fund lost, I think, something like $4 billion betting against the crack. So those inefficiencies can exist, and they tend to be always overvaluations, because that's where you can have those unlimited losses. Undervaluations are very rare because it's easy to correct them. You just buy the stock and it goes up and you're limited in your losses, unlike on the short selling. Market inefficiency is much greater in overvaluation than it is in undervaluation. It's another key tip about thinking you're going to buy a stock that's going to outperform. The odds are great it's not undervalued. You gave a great quote in your book. It said, academic studies show that 90% of returns are determined by asset allocation decisions, not security selection or stock picking. I thought that was such a high number and it just speaks to what you're just talking about, how there are more important things that determine return above stock picking. Can you talk a little bit about asset allocation for our listeners and kind of just expand on this point? Asset allocation refers to how you divide up your portfolio across different assets that have unique risk characteristics. So you have stocks and bonds. Within bonds, you can have treasuries, corporate investment grade bonds, and junk bonds. Within stocks, you can have large and small and value and growth. You can have stocks also that are more profitable and stocks that are less profitable. You could have U.S. and international. The research, and I wrote a book called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, and that really showed that there are certain traits or characteristics. That's what a factor means. It's a trait or a characteristics. Large stocks are companies that have high market capitalizations, like the stocks in the S&P 500. And then you could have small stocks that may have a valuation in the $100 million range. You have value stocks, which are cheap stocks. They trade at low PEs or growth stocks, which are defined as high PE stocks. Warren Buffett had been telling investors for decades that he beat the market because he bought cheap stocks that were more profitable and they were higher quality. They didn't have a lot of volatility in their earnings, not a lot of leverage on their balance sheet. So the academics went in and reverse engineered that. Of course, it took them 50 years to figure out what Buffett had been telling people for decades. But eventually they found this. Let's see if we can identify what the stocks are that Buffett says you should buy. And if we can identify that there are common traits, then we can just buy an index of those stocks or create an index of them. And we don't have to do any research into that. Or is it that Buffett's a great stock picker? Now, most people would say Buffett was a great stock picker. The research says that's not true. Buffett's genius was he identified these traits well before others. And in that first book, at the time, academics had identified two factors or traits that allowed you over time to outperform the market. And they were value, so buy cheap and buy smaller stocks. So the highest expected and historically highest returning stocks were small value. But that only explained about two-thirds of Buffett's success or his outperformance. So the academics kept trying to drill down, and eventually they found that there were two other characteristics. One, profitable stocks. So if you bought stocks with high return on assets, high return on equity, 
high gross margins that were high and quality. So they had these other traits of more stable earnings. If you just bought an index of those stocks, you basically match Buffett's performance and his alpha, all his alpha performance virtually disappears. So his genius, not taking anything away from him because he figured this out five decades before the academics, was at identifying these traits. And Buffett has not outperformed the, these types of indices for the last 13 years or so. And the market has become much more efficient because active managers, for example, used to be able to say, for example, when I wrote my first book in 98, if you bought small value stocks that were more profitable and higher quality, you could claim you were outperforming even on a risk-adjusted basis. But since 2013, you can't do that anymore because all the funds that I own and others own and their ETFs incorporate that. And they buy all these stocks. So you have to make, we're able to benchmark it against an, a better measure. And you could do it very cheaply. And you don't have to spend any time watching CNBC, reading Barron's. And you get to spend far more time on things that are far more important in your life. Like I got to re- get to read stories to my grandkids, take my wife on walks to parks and travel around the world. And I never spend one minute listening to stock picking or reading market timing episodes. You'll have a much better quality of life and the odds are you'll be wealthier as well. I love that you related that back to Warren Buffett's success because we talk about Warren Buffett's strategy a lot on our show. That's actually what our flagship show was founded on, was studying Warren Buffett's investment principles and his success. And it's so cool to see that it can be explained by these factors. And so I've been talking, I've introduced factor investing on the show a little bit already. So our listeners are kind of familiar with factors and how it works. I introduced the Fama five-factor model. And in your book, you talk about what makes a factor a true factor or not, because academics have been coming up with so many factors now over the years to try and explain the differences in returns, but you cover five rules that a factor needs to meet for you to invest in it. So can you talk a little bit about those and then which factors actually meet those rules? First, I want to mention that I did write a book called Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Uh, And it explains everything we've been going through. So for your listeners, Uh, that book is available. So I'm really proud uh, of that book. You're a complete guide to factor-based investing because Andy Burke and I did create these rules here. And now you see that quoted often in academic papers. Unfortunately, no one credits Andy and I for coming up with those, those rules, but that's okay. Again, a factor is a trader characteristic. And academics are, the problem today for academics is 50 years ago, you had to have a theory, and then you could test it by looking at the data, but you didn't have high-speed computers. When I was doing my MBA program, you had punch cards, and you had to program them and turn them in overnight, and maybe the next day or two days later, you'd get the answers. It was difficult and expensive to test theories. Today, you can tell any high-speed computer, find me a correlation, and it will spit it out but it doesn't mean there's any reason for you to believe that correlation has any value. You need correlation that there's a tie, meaning there's causation for that correlation. 
So to prevent the risk of this data mining, tell it, you know, torturing the data until a computer confesses, right, uh, is the joke. When Andy and I came up with these rules to minimize the risk of a data mining outcome, purely random, like the, when the NFL wins, the Super Bowl stocks go on to do well or vice versa. Makes no sense. So you shouldn't believe it persists. There's John Cochran, who was head of the American Finance Association, in a keynote speech complained about the problem that there's this zoo of factors, like 600 of them, although many of them are very similar. There are dozens of value strategies. You can use low PE, low price to book, low price to cash flow, to dividends, to sales, and they're all the same. There are dozens of momentum strategies. So it's not quite as bad as it seems, but you do have the zoo. And Andy and I said, how do you know which exhibits in the zoo you should visit or invest in? So we came up with these rules. One, the factor had to show a premium and it had to add explanatory power to the existing model. So in other words, the factor had to have some uniqueness or independence to the other factors. Value, you know, you've got all these similar ones. They're all pretty much the same. So, but that's not enough because we worry about data mining outcome. So we said we want to make sure the factor exhibits persistence, not over a 10 or even 20 year period, but much longer periods. That's important. It has to be across economic cycles. So you get a premium over including bear markets and recessions and depressions and good markets. It has to be pervasive, meaning it works across industry, sectors, countries around the globe to make sure we are not getting a data mining outcome or a lucky outcome. It should also work even across asset classes. Value, meaning buying what's cheap, outperforms in stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. Momentum works in each of these areas. What are the odds that that is now going to be a data mining outcome? You shrunk it dramatically. It also has to be implementable, meaning it survives transactions costs. Say micro cap stocks you know, have a 5% premium, but it costs you 10% to trade. It's not an implementable strategy, right? It has to be robust to various definitions. So value, the original definition Fama and French used, was price to book. But maybe that's a fluke. If that works, why wouldn't price to earnings or price to cash flow or other metrics also work? So we said it should be robust. It turns out no matter what metric you use for value, you get a value premium. And it's better, actually, if you run a fund that uses three or four metrics. I can explain why if we, we have time, but you're better off using what's called an ensemble approach because you get a diversification benefit because sometimes PE works better, different cycles, price to book works better. So you're better off getting some diversification. Momentum works almost regardless of whatever the formation and holding period is. And last and maybe most importantly, there has to be either a risk-based explanation or a behavioral one for why we think that premium is going to persist. Otherwise, it could be a data mining outcome. Now, we prefer a risk-based explanation because risk cannot be arbitraged away. It doesn't mean the premium can't shrink or grow. 
It depends on, you know, if something gets popular, more money will flow into it. If everyone discovers what Buffett discovered, his premium is going to shrink because you're driving up the prices. But it shouldn't disappear if there's a risk story, meaning these companies are riskier. On the other hand, behavioral ones can be arbitraged away, and many of them have. Lots of papers have been published. For example, there was something called the accrual anomaly. Companies that put on their balance sheet accruals, taking in earnings too soon, well, it turns out on average, they do take them in too soon. Some of them don't actually appear, and those stocks turn out to be overvalued. Well, shortly after that publication of that finding was made, the accrual anomaly disappeared, at least for large cap stocks. But as I mentioned, there are these limits to arbitrage that can prevent anomalies from being corrected, especially in small stocks, not so much in large stocks. Very hard to engineer a squeeze in Microsoft on a short squeeze. Easier to do it on GameStop because there's not that many shares available. So we said you have to have the premium and it has to meet all these five criteria. For bonds, it's simple. It's just maturity risk and credit risk. And credit risk has not been well rewarded. So probably better off not taking it by only safer bonds in general, at least when it comes to public bonds and stocks. The key ones are just five, size, value, momentum, profitability, and quality. You can ignore all the others that are out there. And so a simple way to do it is by very simple, small value stocks that are highly profitable and higher quality. And you could do that with a whole range of funds that are fund families like Dimensional, Avantis, Bridgeway, BlackRock, all have relatively low cost, tax efficient, highly diversified vehicles that people can use to access. I loved reading all the explanations of the behavior versus risk-based argument for each factors. I found that so, so interesting in your book. And I honestly think that could be a whole episode just kind of going through some of them with you because when I was reading it, I had so many questions came up honestly about those, but I couldn't get into them all today. I do want to point out though, because so even though you say passive investing is the winning strategy, it doesn't mean investors can't beat the market or get great returns. And so you write in your book that beating the market is actually easy. And it's through this strategy that you just explained so wonderfully factor investing. Could you just expand on that for our listeners? Rebecca, I want to correct this. Beating the market is simple. It's not easy. And the reason it's not easy is every single investment strategy that involves risks will go through long periods of underperformance. I tell you, there are three periods, for example, of at least 13 years. This is going to shock investors where the S&P underperformed totally riskless one-month treasury bills. 1929 to 43, that's 15 years. 66 to 82, that's 17 years. And just recently, 2000 through 12, uh, that's 13 years. That's 45 of the last 93 years, or almost half. Now, it's people, one of the biggest problems investors have is they think when it comes to judging an investment strategy, three years is a long time, five years is a very long time, and 10 years is an eternity. And if you believe that, well, you wait 10 years, you didn't get the results, you panic, you sell. 
Now, whether you're talking about the market, as I just gave an example, or value strategies, value strategies have much higher persistence of performance than the market, but they too go through long periods. The late 90s, they dramatically underperformed. You heard this time is different. Of course, we had a bubble in growth stocks that eventually blew up. And from 2000 to 08, we had the largest value premium in history. From 2017 through 2020, again, we had a bubble in growth stocks. It eventually blew up like it was virtually inevitable. And growth uh, has underperformed dramatically since around October of 2020. So now about two years. But if you can't stick it out and you in value stocks and they have three or four years of bad underperformance, your stomach grinds, you panic and sell, and now you've missed out. It's simple, but it's not easy because of our stomachs often take control. And I've yet to meet a stomach that makes good decisions. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. 
you'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Thank you for correcting me on that because you write in your book, I wanted to get you to touch on that with the time horizon because like you just talked about, it's simple but not easy because they go through long periods of underperformance and you highlight this in your book so great, the odds of outperformance of each factor in different time horizons. And we don't need to go over each, but it's in general, it was pretty interesting to see how factors performed over different time horizons. And I was really interested to see that momentum had the highest odds of outperformance out of all of them, because to me, momentum is still the hardest strategy for me to wrap my head around how to implement effectively in a factor strategy and find the best fund that can do so. A couple of things here. So very important because every risk strategy, every factor, every asset class will virtually certainly undergo a long period of underperformance. How do you deal with that? The best way to deal with that is one, don't take more risks than you can handle or have the ability or need to take. So that means don't take more equity risks, don't have more equity exposure than your stomach can handle or you need to take. In my book, I give examples about how to help you figure that out. But within equities, you want to diversify that. U.S. stocks have outperformed dramatically for the last 10 years. The prior 10 years, they dramatically underperformed. The prior 10 years, they outperformed. The prior 10 years, they underperformed. You you could be unlucky and you think you're putting all your eggs in one basket because that's the right basket. People said, way to invest is you don't need a basket, just buy one stock or a small group and watch it carefully. That's nonsense because watching it doesn't change its risk, right? And so what you want to do is diversify across these factors and diversify so you own U.S. international develop, own small value others around the globe own momentum. Now, as to momentum, it probably be helpful without getting too technical here. There are actually two types of momentum. So we'll explain that briefly to your audience. There's what's called time series momentum, which is basically trend following. You buy what's going up and you sell what's going down. Okay. That's simple. There are funds that do that. The problem there is that there are many definitions of momentum. And I wrote a paper, or sorry, my friend Marat Boger wrote a paper on this, and he showed that momentum works, but the best strategy is to own multiple strategies of momentum, because some work on short signals. So the market moves in very quickly. It'll go from short to long if it turns down. Others work on intermediate signals, and other work on longer signals. So you might think of it as one working on a maybe a 30-day moving average, another on a 60, and another on 180. Well, they over various decades, different ones work better. So you want to diversify that. And he found you got the best results by owning multiple managers who use different strategies. Then there's something called cross-sectional momentum, which is relative momentum, not absolute momentum. 
So that means if you look at stocks, say you're a small value fund, okay? So you've got maybe a thousand stocks in your universe. It will buy the top 30% that's performing the best and short the 30% that's performing the worst or avoid buying them. It doesn't matter. They could all be going up, but you're still going to short the ones that are going up the least. Or they're all going down and you still buy the ones that are going down the least and short the ones going down the most. All of the funds that we use incorporate some form of momentum. So a small value fund run by Dimensional, Avantis, Bridgeway, for example, if a a large growth stock is going down in price, now it becomes a small value stock and enters their eligible universe. Vanguard's fund will buy it because it's now in their index. The funds that I mentioned would not buy it until that negative momentum ceased. So you don't have to worry about momentum or anything else. You just buy these funds that incorporate the strategy. Now, there are funds like, I think, MTUM, which is a time series momentum type of fund, trend following. AQR runs a trend following that uses multiple signals. So they're trying to capture or blend that ensemble, which I think is the better way to go based on the research. So you can buy funds, but momentum goes through long periods of poor performance. It had a great period and it helped you escape the really bad ravages of the great financial crisis because you got short and it stayed short. And then it did poorly for a decade. And then the 2020 COVID came and now it turned and you had great results again. It's been very positive. But if are you going to hold on for a decade of poor performance? If you can't, then don't own them. That's why I get back to own size, value, momentum, and all kinds of other assets, not just stocks and bonds. I own reinsurance uh, fund, for example. I own a fund that makes consumer small business loans and a fund that owns middle market loans. These all have unique characteristics that diversify that risk of the stocks and bonds in my portfolio. I want to touch on the diversification piece with you just a little bit because I have two kind of things I want to disentangle with you. A lot of our listeners are in the US. And so you talked about how diversification is key to a winning strategy in terms of diversifying your factor exposure because they all kind of outperform and underperform at different times. But then also regionally, because we also talked about how asset allocation is responsible for a lot of performance. How should U.S. investors think about properly allocating their capital between U.S. markets compared to internationally compared to emerging markets? Because I think that part, people might have a lot of questions on that. A starting point should always be that the market price is the best estimate of the right price. And therefore, you should allocate your capital the way the world allocates your capital. So for simplicity purposes, Let's think about half of the world is U.S., about three-eighths is the rest of the developed world, and one-eighth emerging markets, okay? Now, so you, that could be your starting point. Now, for a U.S. investor, U.S. investing is a bit cheaper. The trading costs are less, and it's a bit more tax efficient. It has to do with foreign tax credit issues. That would argue for a slight home country bias. 
So instead of 50-50, maybe you're 60-40. I would make a counter argument to that in that if you're a U.S. citizen you're, and you're employed, you also have your labor capital and tied to the U.S. economy almost certainly. And therefore, if the U.S. economy is doing poorly, you could lose your job and, and now your U.S. stocks are getting hit at the same time. So you have to balance that. But other than that, those are the two issues to think about. I personally allocate my capital the way the world does today. And so I'm roughly that I'm 50, 35, 15. Canada same, should hold for pretty much every country. The problem is, listen to this. This is what the research shows. It shouldn't surprise anybody, really. Every investor in the world overweights on average. Every country, those investors overweight their home country, surely because of home country bias. They confuse something with familiar with safety. And so if the U.S. is half, the typical U.S. investor is 90 percent. doesn't matter. You go to France, which might be 3 percent of the world capital, 80 percent of French investor capital is in French stocks. Same thing in Canada, same thing in Japan. And that's true. And I'll give you one great example of the foolishness of that idea. Rebecca, let's assume you lived in Atlanta. What stock do you think you might overweight? Uh, Coca-Cola, that's okay. the headquarters, uh, right? Seattle, most people would know that's the headquarter of a Boeing. Is it any safer to own Coca-Cola if you live in Atlanta or if you live in Ottawa? Not. So why do people in Atlanta, you know, over-own Coke? And investors in Houston over-owned Enron. And investors in New York over-owned uh, Polaroid and Kodak, both of which went bankrupt. You know, they confuse the familiar with the safety. And Canadian investors think Canadian stocks are cheaper. You should get that out of your head and invest with the principles I put out, considering that it is cheaper generally to invest in your country stocks. So that could have lead you to a little bit of that bias because of that. But again, I'd recommend you at least consider if you're working your labor capital exposure to the markets as well. Right. Okay. That is so interesting because I was going to ask you, I'm based in Canada and we have some listeners here as well as abroad. And I was wondering if it stayed the same depending on where you live, because I actually have the opposite problem. I invest, I thought way too much in US. I think my exposure is about 60% right now, which is too high. And so I was wondering if I'm in Canada, should that be higher then because I'm in Canada and it's my domestic country and there's perhaps some small tax benefits, but maybe that's getting too nuanced. A general rule is invest, like you said, the world market cap. Yeah, well, I, 60% for you certainly seems to me to be too high. 50 would be my starting point. And then maybe you if Canadian investments are cheaper for you, you might have a bit of home country bias. But again, you're young. Maybe the largest asset on your balance sheet is your expected labor income over the rest of your life. You should consider that. And if that's tied to Canada, maybe it's not. But if it is, you should consider that. I'll add one other thing, and I hesitate almost to include this because people will jump on it and say, as a market timing thing. Valuations do matter. And today, U.S. stocks are trading, I would say, getting close to about what might be historically the average P.E. ratios 
So we're about 17 on the S&P 500, okay? But value stocks are trading as if the world's coming to an end, small value in particular. If you look around the globe, U.S. small value, international small value, emerging market small value are trading at PEs in the sixes and sevens. Europe is trading and developed world is trading in single digits. Emerging markets are in single digits. The best estimate we have of future expected returns is PE ratios. You would invert them. 17 PE would get you a six earnings yield, and that's a reasonable estimate of the future expected real return. But a eight PE would get you 12 and a half. Now, that doesn't mean they're better investments. It means the market thinks they're riskier. But since you mentioned your overweighted U.S., I'll point out you're overweighting stocks that have much lower expected returns than the stocks you could, you're underweighting. And I think that should push you back to that starting point. I don't recommend timing based on valuations, except at very extreme levels, like PEs of 40s and stuff like that. I kind of use it as a rule where I usually don't let my U.S. go over 50, but just the way it went over the past year, it went up there and I honestly haven't rebalanced. But I do want to talk to you about how to best get exposure to these factory ETFs, because there's been a lot of new factory ETF products come out. And in your book, you provide your kind of approved list of ETFs that you approve for each factor, but that was written a little bit ago. So I'm wondering if you have any updated thoughts on which are the best to expose ourselves to each factor. Because as a personal example, I've been investing in vanguards, but now Dimensional is available in Canada as well as the US. And Avantis has come out with quite interesting factor exposures. So do you have a kind of a priority list? One of the worst mistakes that investors make is they think that, say, all small value ETFs are created equal, and therefore I'm just going to buy the cheapest one, say Vanguard. That's a huge error. It's like thinking, you know, I should take my wife out on her anniversary to Subway for dinner. You buy value, you don't buy cheap, except if it's a pure commodity. So if I'm looking to buy an S&P 500 index fund, I should buy the cheapest one because they're all identical before expenses. But let me give you an example, and your listeners can go check this themselves. I haven't checked recently. But so if you look at, say, Vanguard Small Value Fund, its average market cap is, last I looked, was like $6 billion, and its average PE might have been 17. If you looked at dimensionals, their average market cap was about half of that, and their average PE might have been 10. And then if you look at Bridgeway, which is a mutual fund, not an ETF, its average market cap was like a billion and the PE was even lower. So the expected returns are much higher for DFA than Vanguard, and they're much higher for Bridgeway DFA. So what you want to look at are three key characteristics, I would say. Look at the expense ratio. And then look at the average market cap and then look at the average P.E. ratio or price to book or some combination. And you should be willing to pay a bit more to get deeper exposure. Vanguard's small value fund isn't very small. Six billion market cap is not very small. 
And whatever the PE is now, it's much higher than it is for Dimensional or Bridgeway or Avantis. I think the three funds families that I currently use, or I'll use two because there's only two that have ETFs. I think Avantis and Dimensional are the two leading players. They're very similar. I use them for tax loss harvesting, so I'll swap one for the other. In fact, the research team for Avantis came out of the research team at Dimensional. They're both filled with world-class academics, and you can certainly trust them. They're highly diversified, stay disciplined, and Avantis's funds run in the, for, for factor funds in the roughly 25 to 30 basis points. Dimensionals are similar, and I would use those funds, and you can build a very simple, globally diversified portfolio using as little as just a few funds doing that. That was super, super helpful. That's something that, yeah, I've been wanting to ask you for a while now because we think that low cost is more important. And when I was looking at Dimensional and Avantis, it is way higher than Vanguard's. But like you mentioned, there's more to consider because this is an active approach at the end of the day. And so there's more to consider with this than just the lowest cost. It's, are you actually well, getting the premium? Yeah, let me say this. People throw around these words active and passive, and there's no real definition. So what I try to do is this. Certainly, every fund is active in how it defines its universe. For example, Vanguard is active in small value because it happens to choose, I think it's now the crisp in small value index. Well, it used to use the Russell 2000, and then I think it switched to the MSCI, and now well, that's an act of this, and there are differences. DFA creates its own universe and defines it based on the academic research like we talked about. So we'll screen out certain stocks with bad characteristics. But once they define their universe, they implement it systematically in a transparent and replicable way. But one difference is it will trade patiently where an index fund can't. Something leaves the index, it's got to get out. So that's an advantage of a systematic quant fund over a pure index fund. But as a good example, Vanguard's fund versus Dimensional. Dimensional's fund, I think today is about 40 basis points for small value. Vanguard, I think, is eight. And yet since inception, Dimensional's fund has outperformed Vanguard's fund despite the higher expenses because it has deeper exposure to these factors. And that's ultimately what's important. Yes, costs are important and they're certain and returns are uncertain. But so you want to make sure you have a big enough expected difference. If I thought Vanguard would underperform DFA by say 10 basis points, but I was saving 30 in expenses, I'd say, okay, I'll take the 30 basis point certainty over expected 10. But if I think dimensional is going to outperform by 60, now I can make a better choice. That was super helpful. I actually have upcoming guests coming on from Dimensional. So I'm super excited about that to ask him to kind of compare these more in detail because I do find that fascinating how even when you're paying more, it's one of the things that it's like you said, quality over just lowest cost. I didn't even get through half of my questions with you. This was so great. 
I'm so happy that I got to have you on and I hope we can do this again because I still have so many things that I wanted to talk to you about, about the incredible Shrinking Alpha and your other book, Your Complete Guide to a Successful Retirement. Everyone can kind of read your stuff also on Seeking Alpha. I love reading your articles on there. But before I let you go today, where can the listeners go to connect with you, read your books, learn more about you and then all the work you put out? Well, first, uh, my latest book, uh, which we can also talk about, the hottest trend in finance now is towards sustainable investing, ESG type investing. So I recruited Sam Adams to help me write Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. And I write now, in addition to Seeking Alpha, I write mostly for Alpha Architect, which I think is the premier website for those investors who are really into the science of investing little more technical stuff. So novices might find it a little above them. Uh, but I also write for Advisor Perspectives every week, an article as well. You can find me there. The best thing and simplest thing to do is I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. And whenever any of my articles are posted anywhere, I will put an alert out, provide the link. So just follow me on Twitter and, or LinkedIn, and you'll be able to follow all of my research. And of course, Rebecca, I'd be more than happy to come back again. It's been a pleasure. And like I said, my life's mission is really to help investors by educating on them on what the academic research says, not my opinion, but what the research says is the strategy most likely to enable them to achieve their life and financial goals. Thank you so much, Larry. I really, really appreciate that. And I cannot wait for another conversation. My pleasure. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.